Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 251. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing a couple of very, very different movies. I'm looking back at a Hitchcock film from 1948 that I haven't covered before, which is Rope, starring John Dole, Farley Granger and James Stewart. And then I go to A Guilty Pleasure of My Youth from 1974, it's the Australian film adapted from the incredibly popular TV series, at least locally, and it's number 96, the movie. So sit back and get the contact details out of the way, and we'll get the show started. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciation. There's only a couple of rules here. The first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old, and it's a rule I break occasionally. And the second rule is I have to find some interesting things to say about it. Uh, feedback's very important to the podcast, so you can offer it a couple of ways. You can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. And also, or you can send me an owl if you went to Hogwarts. You can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as $1 US per month. Just be aware with the podcast, I may swear occasionally, so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with Australian pronunciation. So how is everybody doing? Um, Autumn is sneaking up on us here, blowing cold air on our toes and making the Manchurian pear tree in the front yard start dropping its leaves. Basically, everything from now until November sucks for me. But there are still movies, and I can put the warmer on, so we should be okay. Um, by the way, we are doing the 15-minute rule, the Richard rule, saying that I have to start talking about the movies 15 minutes into the podcast, as usual. Uh, so what's been happening? We've kind of not been doing too much because we're getting ready for Japan and kind of working out last-minute details. We've got our Japan Rail Pass, so we can go on the Shinkansen to Osaka and Hiroshima and um, at 300 kilometres an hour, which is quite a fucking cool. Um, I love technology and I love fast rail, so I'm going to really enjoy that. Sal's going to enjoy that. Uh, we've, we've even got the, you know, getting from the airport to the hotel sorted out, so it's getting very real now and you kind of go, okay, what last minute thing do I need to do with this? We don't even have to worry about toothbrushes. The hotel supplies toothbrushes and toothpaste. So doing okay with all this stuff. And um, it's going to be a great adventure. We haven't been overseas for about eight years. And so there are aspects of it that are daunting. But still, you've got to go with the adventure. Plus, we're going to be filming a lot of YouTube videos. So if you haven't gone to youtube.com, slash letter C, slash Terry Frost, and subscribed. You're going to miss out on all the cool shit I'm going to do, including looking for secondhand DVDs, um, all the cultural stuff as well, the cherry blossoms. You're going to miss out if you don't do that. Uh, we're up to 142 subscribers, which is great, and I'm going to put out a lot more content between now and Japan as well. Uh, the other thing is that on the YouTube channel, and this blew me away, I did an in-memoriam to kind of honour movie people who had died in 2018. So I put one together because I don't like the ones that the Oscars do. They're short. They miss people out. They're really kind of bad. My one has got the most hits of any of my YouTube videos. It's up over 7,000 views at the moment. And I must have done something right there. So I'm now already preparing the 2019 in memoriam we're going to do one for tv and we're going to do one for movies so that's my end of year project to get done but uh i just keep watching the numbers on that and i don't want to get too obsessed with numbers on the youtube channel as i don't on the podcast but it's pretty fucking mind-blowing Seven thousand people is a lot of people put them in one place and it's you know it's a hell of a lot of people so um, that's kind of reassuring and rewarding, and it's one of those little carrots on a stick that keeps you going with things. So there's that. Um, I've also got to do a shout-out to the people of Christchurch in New Zealand. Um, a long time ago, in about 1988, 
I visited Christchurch, and the people there were wonderful. I liked the town square. I didn't like the cathedral much because I'm not a cathedral kind of guy. But I liked the city, and the people there were crazily warm and welcoming to me and my then wife when we visited. And the atrocity of the Australian white terrorists uh, attacking and killing at least 49 people in the synagogue yesterday has hit both sides of the Tasman Sea pretty heavily. Um, these things happen, unfortunately, and I think that we, particularly Australia as a society, has a hell of an obligation now to do something about homegrown terrorism. We've been catering well, the right side of politics for the last 20 years has been normalising hate speech in politics so that minor parties with right-wing and overtly racist agendas would vote for their policies. Now, this has got to stop this a line being drawn in the sand politically and particularly one senator posted some shockingly bad things on Twitter immediately after the atrocities in Christchurch and I called him out on it on Twitter, and we got a whole bunch of people to try to get him banned from Twitter for his hate speech. And um, he's only here in the Parliament until May this year, but he's a dangerous man with links to some really, really extreme right-wing people, and we're all aware of it here. And the fact that um, our political mechanism has essentially created this particular terrorist is a deeply shocking thing for us. And it's worse for New Zealand, I know. New Zealand's got about the population of one of our smaller cities. And Christchurch has got the population of Canberra, which is a very small city. And so people over there are aching, they're questioning their society, they're trying to find ways to be better. Their Prime Minister, Jacinta Ardern, made a speech that was mind-blowingly good about this particular issue and inclusive. Um, yeah, it's We live in troubled and interesting times. But on the very same day, across the planet, millions of children skip school so that they could protest against climate change inaction. So it was a day of pluses and minuses, and it was um, profoundly polar for us you know we had the great thing of the children's crusade then we had the news coming in from Christchurch so yeah it's um it's difficult times and I think what we have to do and continue to do a lot of us are doing it already is to call out racism when we hear it call out extreme ideas when we hear it and have a zero tolerance approach to it engage the people and try to convince them that they're wrong in whatever means, and we're only now learning how to do that in any meaningful way. But, um, yeah, my heart goes out to New Zealand. My New Zealand friends, and I've got a lot of them living over there, um, are having a very hard time of it. So, kia kahata my whanau in New Zealand. Um, I'm thinking about you guys. For those of you elsewhere, kia kaha means it's a term used to um, encourage strength and confidence. So it's something that the Māori people do, and it seems very right in this particular instance. So I'm going to not talk about that anymore. I'm going to talk now about what I've been watching. Um, let's see. did see a Netflix film, a recent one, which is kind of interesting. Uh, it's got aspects of a modern version of The Treasure of the Sierra Madre about it. Uh, it's about a whole bunch of ex-Special Forces soldiers who are brought together by Oscar Isaac's character, Oscar Isaac's in it, um, Ben Affleck, Charlie Hunnam, Pedro Pascal, and they get together uh, because they've found a way in to a drug lord in South America's mansion so they can steal a lot of money from him, essentially. Um, and they, they get down there, they find much, much more money than they expect to find and then the story becomes the troubles they have getting the money out across the Andes to a boat waiting for them on the coast. The um, drug lords in Brazil, they've got to get across the Andes in a helicopter and from there 
take the money to a boat on the coast. And it becomes a very much an endurance thing. Uh, lots of charismatic actors in there. Pedro Pascal, uh, Oscar Isaac, uh, Bat Flick. Some great location shooting. Nice bits of special effects. Um, and some good fluid action photography. Um, they use the Steadicam really well into great effect in this movie. I'm not sure it's one of the great action films of all time. But it's not a waste of time either. It's um, definitely one you might want to check out if that's your kind of thing. Triple Frontier will be on Netflix for a while. Uh, then I watched Alice's Restaurant because I hadn't seen it for a long time. Uh, the movie with Arlo Guthrie, directed by Arthur Penn, about the song Alice's Restaurant. Uh, picked it up for $3 at the flea market in Ballarat last weekend, amongst other things. I hadn't didn't have a copy of Midnight Cowboy. I picked up a copy of that as well. So I picked up a few kind of classic gems for about 3 bucks each. Uh, on that particular trip. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of still of two minds about Alice's Restaurant. I think it feels very episodic. I don't think Arlo Guthrie as an actor is what Arlo Guthrie as a musical performer is. But it's got some... It's got very much that kind of old-school hippie feel about it, which I kind of like that part of it. And that aspect of it works. That kind of lived-in historical... Um, look from almost from within on how hippies lived in the 1960s. And, and there's a little bits with Arlo's father, um, Woody Guthrie. Woody Guthrie died a couple of movie, years before the movie was made, but they have an actor playing him. But you don't get that emotional resonance happening uh, the way you should in a movie. Um, that the kind of, you know, the father dying of dementia because of. Um, Hodgkin's disease you don't really get that feel in the movie which is a, a bit of a bummer what a nice to have had just that little more depth along with the humour uh, I did see on Amazon Prime a kind of ordinary documentary called Inside Her Sex which is a story of three different women finding their sexuality I think that um, the women's stories are interesting um, one of them is Candida Royale the former porn performer who went on to make erotica for women. Another is a transgender person. And the third one is somebody who runs a female-positive adult website, which Tumblr have just taken down. But, um, yeah, it's kind of... I like it. I like the story. I don't particularly like the direction. I don't think that the visuals focus as much as they should on what the women's lives were. And, yeah, there's kind of a little bit of kind of messiness around that. But it's good to hear stories about women talking about their own sexuality. Um, it's not a pervy kind of movie. There's some nudity in it, but it's very much in context. But they talk about their life experiences and how they've come to a point of kind of being comfortable in their own skins. And I, I did enjoy watching that. So then I went to something totally sexist, as one does. And watch the Australian movie Scobie Malone starring Jack Thompson. I've seen it tons of times before, but it was on Amazon Prime and I couldn't be fucked changing the channel. Uh, it's based on John Cleary's novel Helga's Web about a sex worker who's found dead in the opera house. And it's got lots of 70s sexploitation nudity in it around a story about um, a dead sex worker. So there's a lot of kind of shifts of tone that really don't work in this one. But there are a lot of good actors in there. Um, you got, Of course, you've got Jack Thompson in there. you get Judy Morris playing Helga, the, the murdered woman. Um, and Noel Ferrier, great Australian character actor, playing a crime boss. Um, Joe Martin, who was on TV all the time. He was a kind of light compare and comedian on TV. But he actually plays quite a, a deep and... Um, Nicely nuanced role as one of Helga's boyfriends, a guy called Jack Savannah. We get lots of old character actors from Australia. It kind of works really well. People like Len London, who used to be on the radio when I was a kid, and Joe James, King Goodlett. People whose names you don't know, James Condon. Jacqueline Cott playing a female socialite. Now, Jacqueline Cott's interesting. She had a um, women's show on TV back in 1957 in Australia and was one of the first people to do a kind of talk show for women 
on Australian TV. Uh, Brian Brown even turns up as a copper at the start of the film in an extra role because this movie's from 1975 before Brian Brown got big. But uh, it does highlight Sydney really interestingly and the crime scene in Sydney really interestingly, but there's a lot of nudity and Scobie Malone gets laid about 85 times in the movie. But anyway, it's time to talk about the movies because we've gone over the 15-minute Richard Rule parts. So I'm going to play the trailer for Rope and then talk about why this is one of Hitchcock's more interesting failures. I do want to. I just think we ought to wait till after you graduate. I don't. It's only a month. Janet, a month. Please. Sorry. I personally consider us engaged as of now. Congratulations. David, no. Look, you can say yes in a taxi. I have a 2.30 appointment I'm in your... staying right here. Oh? Afraid you'll say yes? I'll see you tonight at Brandon's party. Okay. You can say yes, sir, just as well as in a taxi. Goodbye, darling. Bye. That's the last time she ever saw him alive. And that's the last time you'll ever see him alive. What happened to David Kentley changed my life completely and the lives of seven others. Janet Walker, Henry Kentley, the boy's father, his aunt, Mrs. Atwater, his best friend, Kenneth Lawrence, a housekeeper named Mrs. Wilson, and the two who were responsible for everything. Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan. Mouse, cat, mouse. Hello. Which is the cat and which is the mouse? It's a really weird movie in the career of Alfred Hitchcock, and that trailer is one of the reasons why it's weird. The trailer has one of the main characters in it. In fact, the character who dies right at the start of the movie on a park bench in Central Park with his girlfriend. You never see him really alive in the movie. You see him being strangled by the two protagonists, but he never says a word in the whole film, and yet he says a lot in the trailer it's a deeply weird piece of advertising from 1948 so most of us know a lot about what this movie is about it was based on the leopold and loeb murders in the 1920s where clarence darrow did a great speech that was made into a movie called compulsion in 1959 starring orson wells dean stockwell and bradford dillman this plum version is actually based on a play a play by a guy called patrick hamilton it was an english play and it was adapted for the screen by Arthur Lawrence and Hume Cronin. Hume Cronin we know as an actor more than anything, but he also did some writing. Now, I've got a little bit of information from uh, Hitchcock's book with Truffaut, which you should read if you haven't. And Hitchcock was a little bit reluctant about doing his first colour film. And so the colour palette in the apartment in which pretty much all of the story takes place is very muted. It did seem like, I thought, have I got a bad print of this movie? But no, it was like that. And he also had some more problems because some of the evening scenes as the sunset were a bit too orange for him. And that itself created a problem. Now, the conceit that um, Hitchcock had was that he was going to shoot this in as many single shots as possible. So he'd use an entire canister of film, about 10 minutes worth, and then cut to another canister of film with something 
to cover the cut and do the movie in a brief number of takes, which he ultimately did. But there are some obvious bits where you know, the camera zooms on the back of someone's jacket and then zooms out again and the action continues. And anybody with half a brain knows that there's a cut there. So it was a little bit of a smarty-pants filmmaking effort by Hitchcock. He did say it was a stunt and that he probably wouldn't do it again under any circumstances. Uh, the interesting thing about the movie is how much of the gay subtext remains in it. Now, the actors would have been pretty much au courant with that. Um, you've got John Dahl playing Brandon, the um, more dominant of the pair, let's say, and Farley Granger playing Philip, the more passive one. Uh, Dick Hogan plays David Kentley, the guy who gets murdered right at the very start of the film. Uh, you have... Joan Dick playing a friend of theirs called Janet, who was engaged to David, the strangled guy, but who used to be in a relationship with another one of the guests to this party that's organised after the murder, a guy called Kenneth, played by Douglas Dick, which is an unfortunate name for an actor. Um, Mr. Kentley, the father of the dead man, turns up at the party. He's played by Cedric Hardwick, the famous... Sir Cedric Hardwick, who was in Ten Commandments and all sorts of other great movies. Fantastic voice. Not a particularly tall actor, but he did have a lot of gravitas. We have his sister turn up, the character's sister turn up, Mrs. Atwater, played by Constance Collier, who was in her 70s when this movie was made, but really does give us a kind of vivid but ditzy-headed character. On the set, apparently, Constance Collier and Cedric Hardwick, even though they were the theatre actors who were um, have been doing this stuff since the beginning of the 20th century, they apparently had a great time and were joking and laughing and just um, having a good time with it. Now, the other person involved is James Stewart's character, Rupert, Rupert Cadell. Sorry, I didn't say... What is it? Rupert, Rupert, Rupert Cadell, who is an ex-teacher of the four younger people, and who kind of instilled in Brandon and Philip ideas about the Ubermensch, the Nietzsche stuff, a whole bunch of bullshit, basically, about superior human beings, and who kind of has a, a moral comeuppance by the end of the movie. Let's just put it that way. So it's a, a bit of miscasting by James Stewart. They were looking at getting other actors involved, um, Cary Grant or somebody like that. Uh, Montgomery Cliff was considered, but didn't want to do it because he, as a closeted gay actor at the time, didn't want to do a movie which had some fairly obvious gay themes because Brandon and Philip, the two young murderers, are very clearly a couple. And Rupert is an older gay guy. It's um, kind of essayed as that. And also John Dole, the actor who played Brandon, was gay. Farley Granger, who played Philip, was bisexual. And Arthur Lawrence, who wrote the screenplay with Ben Heck doing a bit of work, and Hume Cronin, was himself a gay man. So they knew this stuff was in there and uh, kept it in there to the extent that they could under the production code. And looking at it from a 2019 viewpoint, it's very, very clear sexuality of each of those characters. And the interesting thing is there's also a maid there Mrs. Phillips, played by Edith Evanson, who really does a lot with a little role. I mean, if there was going to be a most valuable player in the acting stakes, it would be a toss between her and Cedric Hardwick, I think, because her as the maid really has a kind of lived-in feel. She puts across that she has a previous working relationship with Brandon and Philip, and she gets these little bits of dialogue about the household stuff, which really does she runs with and gives us a very lived-in villain character who doesn't care that these guys are gay it's not her business she's just working for them which is in you know a very 21st century attitude but i kind of liked her for that i liked the lived-inness of her character in what is a very kind of stiff and play-like movie by alfred hitchcock the movie starts with a street scene looking down on the entrance to the apartment where brandon and philip live and the titles come up over that. We also see Alfred Hitchcock walking down the footpath because you've always got to have your Hitchcock cameo. And everything after that takes place on the set 
for the apartment in which Brandon and Philip live. Now, it's an interesting set because it was designed, everything was on wheels. The furniture was on wheels, the walls and everything else were on wheels so that they could be moved around. Plus, there was a very deep diorama beyond the window, which gave us a New York cityscape, which behind that had fiberglass clouds, which would slowly move across the scene as the scene progressed and um, would then go off to the left and new clouds would roll in from the right. And so you get this kind of interesting idea that you are actually in a city and not on a set. Uh, There are little smokestacks with bits of smoke coming out of them in the diorama. It's a lovely piece of work and one which I think has been emulated by a lot of talk show hosts over the last 20 years. Now, Hitchcock wasn't one normally to give us stuff about murder victims. He wasn't really sympathetic to them. They seemed to be a means to an end for him in so many of his movies and so much of that, uh, of his oeuvre in a sense. But in this one, we kind of do get a lot of sympathy, not only for David, but also for Janet and Kenneth, the two surviving young people who aren't the murderers. Because um, Janet and Kenneth had a previous relationship, they come to this cocktail party when everyone starts wondering where Kenneth is, where David is, sorry. And they had a previous relationship, so they kind of talk to each other because they've been pushed together by Brandon, thinking it was clever to do that. And they kind of have some really nice dialogue which lets them deal with their former relationship, the end of that former relationship, and to move on to the friend zone, in a sense, by mutual agreement. And I like that. It's not a particularly Hitchcockian piece of scripting, and Joan Chandler and Douglas Dick put it across really well. Joan Chandler went on to do some TV stuff, but she was also one of the founding members of the Actors Studio, so she very much knew that bits and pieces like that would help overcome the artifice of the basic concept of having all the long single takes, having it all filmed um, on the set, and Hitchcock's various kind of eccentricities. Because I've been kind of dabbling in filmmaking myself in a small documentary kind of way, one of the things that really occurred to me was how much of the stuff Hitchcock had to do in elaborate, complicated, expensive, enormous and difficult ways can now be done in immensely simpler ways. I'll give you some examples. While making the film, the actors had to step over large cables. There were bits of furniture flying around the place on wheels to get out of the way of these large cameras. Um, There were problems that Hitchcock had with the lighting levels and six days of work out of a Um, 18-day shooting schedule got ruined because of the sunset lights not being quite right. All that stuff you can cure now. Um, There's a couple of things you can do. Now, a decent cine camera is carryable by one person. Now, a red cine camera is not difficult to carry at all, and if you've got a gimbal, it's even easier. It'll shoot 8K, beautifully backed up, batteries last a long time. No problem at all there. So you've got that for a start. The cameras are a lot lighter now and do a lot better job. Lighting itself is a lot easier. There are so many good, cheap, battery-powered lights out there that lighting a movie set or a film set or a TV set is a lot easier. Flat panels have really come good. I got one myself for like $20. It's about the size of a deck of cards, but it puts out a lot of light. If you have a look at the video I did with the Captain Marvel review, the right side of my face is actually lit not by the sunlight coming through the window, but by a little light the size of a deck of cards that I had mounted just off screen to kind of filled out the shadows on the right side of my face. That technology is crazy cheap and so easy to access. Then you've got gimbals. Um, one of the other toys that I've got at the moment is a 4K video camera called a DJI Osmo. It'll shoot nice wide 4K video at 60 frames a second and it's not much larger than a Pez dispenser. And the batteries will last for about an hour of video before they need recharging. 
So technology, Hitchcock would have loved this ship because a lot of the problems where he had to have sets split apart at various places, had to have people jumping over cables, had to scrap a whole bunch of good takes because the light levels were bad, that would easily now be fixed by um, just doing some colour correction. Uh, I can do it myself on my laptop. You can uh, bring up the brightness of the contrast, bring down the brightness of the contrast. You can throw in a little bit of bokeh in the background to get some nights. You can put in a lens flare if you want to have a J.J. Abrams look to it. You can also um, change what they call the look-up tables, which changes the look of the film. You can get that sepia and orange tone that some movies like. You can have a whole bunch of different ones. People are giving away look-up tables for video editing, and the ones that you can purchase, I purchased a bunch that I wanted to use in a particular video, and that cost me $25 Australian. All of this technology is so much simpler than it was in Hitchcock's day. And I don't doubt that at least part of that is because people went, hey, Hitchcock did this movie where he shot everything in single takes and he had to move all of this around and he had to have unwieldy cameras and they had to do this crazy shit with a diorama and the colour values and actors were trying to act while climbing over cables and wires and things. And over the years the movie industry has gone, we can yeah, hold my beer. We can do this a lot simpler. And it has got to the stage now where a lot of the things are handheld. You can get great quality with handheld things. Even with a proper production, a full-on production, saving money on those things and, and having all of those economies there means that A, you can make the movie cheaper, or B, you can spend time more time rehearsing your actors, you can spend a bit more of the money um, getting better actors if you need to and you can spend a lot more time on the story so there are incredible benefits to modern technologies but Hitchcock was ahead of the game he was really there many of the things we can do now with a great amount of difficulty and so watching Rope this time I've got more respect for it than I did before I mean there are things that are smarty pants filmmaking done for the sake of it but Hitchcock wanted to bring us a theatrical experience, not a cinematic experience. And so by doing things the way he did, he, you know, he did carry that off. Um, the, the acting is good. The actors do everything that's expected of them. We hate Brandon and Philip. And we also, to a certain extent, ha hate Rupert, even though there is a scene after Rupert discovers that a real murder actually took place in the apartment and that the body is in the chest upon which their dinner was served. Even though um, James Stewart does get to have this really good speech, which I would have liked to have gone on a little more. I like a wordy speech. I like, particularly when they're talking about morality and things like that, I like a good, long, luxurious speech. It's like having a nice long bath. You can just revel in the words and revel in the ideas and just roll with it. But, you know, this one was punchy enough, even though, as I said, James Stewart was miscast. But for me, um, I think it's lesser, lesser Hitchcock. It really is. And it's Hitchcock, the intellectual, rather than Hitchcock, the guy who wants to pull tricks and fool audiences and things like that. It's, um, yeah, he, he pulled off the stunt he wanted to pull off. He didn't ever have to emulate it again. He had a fairly small cast, a fairly short shooting time, and the editing must have been really fucking easy. I could have edited this movie on a laptop because there were like six cuts in it, six, eight cuts in it, maybe. Um, yeah, it, it really was interesting revisiting it, having a tiny bit of experience myself. I think that it's a bit like if you're watching a movie about roller skating, if you've ever been on a deck you're going to like it a lot more than if you haven't. It's like watching a surfing movie. If you've surfed, you can appreciate it more. A lot of those different things. If you have my childhood, you can appreciate horror movies more. All of those things really do kind of inform the way you view it. And so in my small way, learning about making YouTube videos has enriched my viewing a film. And that's kind of cool. And it's lovely and it's an unexpected piece of wonderfulness for me.
I'm starting to teach Sally to do it now. Now, I'm not an expert by any means, but I've learned a little bit. So I, I teach her what I know. And she's still at the stage, to a certain extent, of being totally annoyed when something goes wrong, where I'm at the stage of, okay, something's gone wrong, what can I do to fix it, and what can I learn from fixing it? So I'm at that stage of things. But, yeah, um, Rope... For a while, it was one of the lost films. There were a few Hitchcock films that weren't seen for a long time because either they um, weren't releasing them to be re-seen on screens of any kind, but um, only in the last, I think, 30, 40 years, uh, 30 years maybe, um, ropes become available, of course, available on digital media. But when I was a kid, the ones we were seeing were North by Northwest and occasionally Marnie. And all of those ones, um, Secret Agent, of course, all the earlier ones. But we weren't, and Psycho. But Rope and Vertigo and The Man Who Knew Too Much just weren't appearing. So it was interesting, I can discover that as those things as an adult, when I can probably understand a lot more of the nuances. But, um, yeah, I, I'm, I've actually got a copy of Frenzy, which I picked up when I was in Sydney for the funeral. And so I'm going to revisit that and just see whether it is as I suspect, Hitchcock starting his decline, or whether it's a little more interesting than that. So I look forward to doing that as well. So anyway, I'm going to take a break now, and then I'm going to talk about a very unusual movie, which is based on a breakthrough Australian TV series, which is a really unusual one in the sense that it was a soap opera, it was simplistic, it had incredibly broadly drawn characters and sometimes bad scripts, and yet it's loved by the people who saw it when they were younger and it may was a part of a lot of different social changes in Australia in the 1970s and that is number 96 the movie and I'm going to tell you about it in just a little bit in the nation what is now a big sensation it sounds average suburbia maybe even formal believe me i kid you not it's anything but normal uh, there's boobs and broads queers and frauds booze and bums and pops i tell you when it comes to sex this place has got the love hey. number 96 number 96 we're such a kinky happy bunch of guys and chicks at number 96 Number 96 The average bot might think it odd What we do for our kicks You think that Arnold fed us smart I tell you he's a till He says a lot of long words Only thinks about the till When he should be trying hard To get Georgina on the pill At number 96 Number 96 you call round there any day, tasteless is home-brewed liquors. Take my advice, don't stay too long, someone might snick your knickers. A girl once shared a flat with Bev, I'm sure she was a witch. But one thing is for certain, Dory Evans is a number 96. A number 96. You'll view a thing or two not seen in TV flicks at number 96. Number 96. For new delights in sexy sights, we'll show you lots of tricks. My Rosie is so nosy, met a Scotsman named Claude. She asked what's worn beneath your kilt, he said leering towards her. There's nothing worn beneath my kilt, it's all in work and order. At number 96, number 96, number 96, number 96. We're all a leery bunch of lusty lunatics At number 96 Number 96 If you're not hot when in the cot That's one thing we can fix Our bed wears see-through and is what makes all the fellows gawk Her knockout no bikini sure will make the whole town talk Cause all that it consists of is two band-aids and a cork At number 96 Number 96 Sonia dates with Chad but lives with Gordon, Sylvia's groom And Bev loves Don the Queer who digs the boy what shares his room I guess you'll find it hard to know who's doing what to whom At number 96 
Number 96. I tell you, you, you come to 96 and I introduce you to a lot of people. All the days, Herb and Dory and Vera, you come and meet them. What's that? You want to come and live at 96? All right, I'll put your name on the list. You are number 96,096,096. That's your number. All right, I'll see you. Bye. That was Johnny Lockwood with number 96. I actually saw him do that live in the 70s at a concert. Anyway, number 96. I've got to explain this for people who didn't grow up in the 70s in Australia where it was um, a, a sociological phenomenon. Now, number 96 was a TV series, which was on five nights a week. Channel 10 put it on. And it was created partly by a guy called David Sale. And I happened to have his book... Uh, number 96, David Bramston, uh, um, let me start again. Number 96, Mavis Bramston and Me by David Sale, where he talks about the creation of a satirical show called The Mavis Bramston Show in the 1960s and number 96 in the 1970s, with which he had a lot to do. He also says that he saw Rock Hudson buggering an actor in the corridors of the Southern Cross Hotel in Melbourne during an awards ceremony in the 1970s. And who am I to disagree? Anyway, um, number 96, they, they decided they were going to do a soap opera set in an apartment block. There are six apartments, two shops down the bottom. And they wanted to make it a bit different because um, Australian television, there were a lot of cop shows like Homicide Division 4 and things like that. But in 1972, um, censorship was unwinding somewhat. And it was decided that they were going to put on after 830 a kind of sexy adult soap opera about these people living in the eastern suburbs of Sydney in this apartment block. And they wanted a, a wide range of characters. There's a Greek deli downstairs by a guy called Algado Godolphus, but Johnny Lockwood, the actor you just heard, who was going to play Aldo, said, can I make him a Hungarian Jew because I can't do a Greek accent? So they ended up with a Hungarian Jew called Godolphus for some reason. And Johnny Lockwood did that. Uh, there was a wine bar on the other side of the thing. There were a couple of pensioners, Herb and Dory Evans, who lived in one of the apartments because they'd owned the original land the apartments were built on. And so wangled with the strata planners to uh, get one of the apartments. There was Don Finlayson, a young lawyer who lived in one of the apartments. Um... Vera Collins, a kind of mysterious woman in her 30s, living in another one, and, and but just basically a wide range of different characters. Now, David Sale, who co-wrote the Bible for number 96 and co-wrote a lot of the episodes, was gay. And so he decided, along with um, Cash Harmon, which was the company who made it, that they were going to do for the first time in Australian television a TV series which was queer-friendly as well as being sexy and heterosexual with lots of naked women. Uh, there was an actress called Abigail who became kind of famous and notorious for being in number 96 wearing a see-through blouse. Um, it was kind of riding the wave of that social change where sexual liberation was happening and people were talking about things that they didn't talk about previously. And... They also wanted to do something that was kind of campy and silly. There were, there's comedy in number 96. There's some drama. There's kind of deep human emotion. There's witchcraft. Basically, they threw everything into the pot. And Australia loved it. It became the most popular show on television. Now, one of the things they did that was really interesting is they had a sympathetic character called Don Finlayson, a law student originally, but then a lawyer played by Joe Hashem, a Lebanese-Australian actor. I'll tell you more about Joe Hashem later because it's really interesting. In about the third or fourth episode, Abigail's character Bev makes a play for Don and then he admits he's gay. He's a very straight-acting gay guy, but he's gay and she kind of throws homophobic insults at him and leaves the apartment and goes into a total snit about it. And for the first time in Australian television, we had a sympathetic gay character who wasn't camp and outrageous. He was a um, law student. He was very um, studious. He was nice. He had friends in wide, a wide range of places. 
he was a breakthrough character for television. And the series continued with a lot of things like that, in between the sex and the titillation and the very, very, very broad comedy that a lot of the other characters brought in. There was a, um, a guy called Arnold who worked in the deli who became infatuated with a woman and then found out that the woman was transgender and non-transitioning yet, played by Carlotta, um, an Australian drag artist and trans advocate person who's still, I think, I don't know if Carlotta's died yet, but Carlotta was going for a lot of years kind of being at the forefront of trans awareness in Australia. And so they handled that one pretty well. The time when there was a lot of negative thought about um, trans people in society, in spite of the fact that King's Cross had a big nightclub called Lay Girls with lots of trans performers and tons of people went to see them. There was the old joke at the time of why do they call them lay girls? Because they don't. And basically, number 96, by being a dumb, camp, silly, low-budget soap opera, actually pried open people's perceptions of a lot of alternative lifestyles. It talked about the difference between rich and poor. The character Bev, played by Abigail's mother, is very wealthy. Had Herb and Dory, the old age pensioners, and their friend Flo, living in one of the apartments who were quite poor. And so, in as a subtext, number 96 talked about social issues. And it, it's a really interesting thing to look back on. Yeah, it, it's cringeworthy at, at times, but you can also see this kind of social conscience that the TV series had threaded through it and which kind of, across the country, opened up people's eyes. Number 96 was crazy popular. It was so popular when the Logie Awards, the big television awards, were on in Melbourne. From Sydney, they hired a whole train several times to take the whole cast from Sydney to Melbourne. And at every stop, there'd be crowds mobbing them and getting autographs all the way 900 kilometres from Sydney to Melbourne. It was that kind of a phenomenon. It really did kind of hit the zeitgeist and become very popular. There were other series later on that came along and tried to emulate it. Um, Crawford Productions tried to do one based in a TV studio called The Box, which went on for a few years and wasn't quite as popular, but I kind of liked it anyway. And then in 1974... They decided they were going to do a number 96 movie. Now, the weird thing about it is they didn't have a very big budget. They had about um, the usual budget of about 10 to 20 grand. They were going to film it over two weeks on the sets for the TV series over the Christmas break in um, 1973-74. And they were going to pay all the actors exactly the same money per week which averaged out about $200 a week for them for the duration of the shoot. So they made number 96, the movie. And it was very popular. I saw it in the cinema, and there's actually a scene in the cinematic version that I saw of Don kissing another man, which was the first gay kiss in um, a mainstream movie in Australia ever. Now, somewhere between Sydney and Melbourne, when the movie prints were moved to Melbourne, and the original master was moved to Melbourne as well to make more prints, that kissing scene disappeared. So some homophobic editor somewhere cut the bloody thing out. So the plot of the movie is somewhat different than the plot of the TV series, and they do get some weird closure for some of the characters. Um, It does start out with the brutal rape of one of the characters, Vera Collins, by a motorcycle gang, and... um, It's not shown in a titillating way at all, which is kind of refreshing for the 1970s. It's filmed at night. It's filmed as a very traumatic experience. Now, the character of Vera is a tough woman. She's lived through a lot of stuff, as we know from her backstory from the TV series. Spent some time in the Point Piper of a mansion of her friend Claire, played by Thelma Scott, who was herself a lesbian, and meets a guy called Nicholas Brent, who's a politician. Now, Nicholas Brent um, is played by James Conner. He's a kind of good-looking, grey-haired guy, charismatic, charming, a bit of fun. 
and ends up being the Prime Minister of Australia, and she ends up being his wife. Spoilers for a movie you probably never see. Um, you get all of the other characters in there. There's a 40th wedding anniversary for the pensioner couple we've got in there. A number of comical skits, including one set in uh, um, bowls, at a bowls club where people do like green bowl, not tempin bowling, but kind of like batonk almost. Bowling, um, we get a whole bunch of nudity and we get somebody being gaslighted by their new husband with the aid of a third accomplice. And that also gives us an opportunity to see a lot more nudity in the series than the series ever showed on television, sorry. So number 96, I mean, it was weird because it was crazy popular. Every t- In the cinema, every time a familiar character came on screen, the audience would cheer because we knew them so well. And yet you rewatch it now and you go, wow, that's really fucked. But it's kind of interesting as well. It comes from a time when entertainment, popular entertainment in particular, was very, very unsophisticated on Australian television. Um, there were broad jokes there. There was... There were not homophobic jokes in there, which was kind of good. There is one mildly racist bit where somebody goes to a fancy dress party in blackface, but that's over in about five seconds. But that social conscience shines through. People with shady pasts get a chance at redemption in both the TV series and the movie of number 96. They, you know, Good people are rewarded in some ways and bad people are punished while you've got a lot of slap and tickle and nudity and really bad jokes by various people. Um, Malapropisms from Dory Evans, the pensioner lady, uh, which have become almost kind of like catchphrase comedy in a sense. They do get annoying after a while. But re-watching this, I, I found myself more fond than the last time I re-watched it because I could see what they were doing here. I could see the fact that they were ahead of the curve when it came to social change and acceptance of diversity, than a lot of other TV series, and in fact, our society as well. When the TV series first came out, homosexuality was illegal. But then the Whitlam government came in and it became legal. And before that happened, number 96 was accepting of gay characters partly because David Sayer, one of the creators, was gay himself. But I think that it took a certain courage, not only by the people making the series and the movie, but also by um, the station to show that stuff and risk approbation in doing so. And there were a lot of religious groups that really did give it a lot of shit, but the studio and, uh, you know, the... TV studio didn't care because they were making money hand over fist with number 96. There was a lot of merch out there. In fact, one of the things I'm picking up on eBay next week is the number 96 cookbook. I'm going to try to cook some 1970s recipes with it. And there were, it was um, a weird social phenomenon. Um, I'm still trying to get my head around the dichotomy between the corny jokes and the silliness and the slapstick humour and the advanced level of social engineering it was attempting to do, and the acceptance it showed for diversity. It's its a really thing. It's, it's kind of like a platypus. One end of it looks like one thing. The rest of it looks like another. And if you go into fine detail, it gets even weirder. Now, the building which was used for the establishment shots of number 96, which is in Monco Street, Wallara in Sydney, is still there. Now, I put up a picture of the building as it is now, on a Facebook group. Now, it's been renovated to hell and it's not the same colour. It's got the same structure, but it's not the same colour as it was in the 1970s. And I put it up on a Facebook group and said to people, guess what this is? And everybody around my age said, that's number 96 immediately. It's just as familiar as the Starship Enterprise in a way, in a certain small part of the world south of the equator. And um, that makes it kind of fun for me nostalgia is something we all indulge in we we do go there it's a comfort place for us all in a lot of ways and it is also a kind of milestone so we can see how far we've progressed as people 
since we first experienced whatever we're nostalgic about. It is a way of measuring kind of psychological distance and how our tastes have evolved. So being nostalgic about things, I think, is a good thing as long as it's not politics. And for me, watching number 96, the movie on Amazon Prime, was that kind of a nostalgia. It was a fond nostalgia. It was a an evaluation kind of nostalgia. Now, there are no good prints of this um, movie out because... They made it on 16 mil because it was made so cheaply and blew it up to 35 mil for theatrical release. And that never makes you get a really clear image at all. I mean, I'd love to see the um, Australian Film and Sound Archive do some digital restoration on it, but that's probably not going to happen. But yeah, so it is slightly grainy and a bit silly. Um, It's not particularly well edited in places. And there are some kind of very weird shifts of mood between scenes. But it worked for me. And um, I may well revisit it again at some stage. It's part of my childhood, part of my adolescence. It's part of my change from the incredible homophobic masculine environment in which I grew up to a more kind of nuanced and broader world. Which, is, which I thank it for. And anybody who's who had a part of number 96 that wants to come over, I will shout them a coffee every day of the week. But it was the start of my education in the way the world is in a, in a very positive sense. And I kind of liked that. And I will always forgive the flaws in something like number 96 because of that. So anyway, we've just about hit the time to knock, knock, knock that naughty clock that says it's time to go, as the great Nancy Cato used to say on the Magic Circle Club, another nostalgic thing. Uh, Thank you for listening. Um, We'll be back very soon with another Martian Drive-In podcast. I may look at some of Captain Marvel. I've talked about it on YouTube. I've talked about it on the radio, so I may or may not do that. But anyway, in the meantime, look after yourselves. Keep watching the skies. Watch some good movies. Watch some bad movies. Don't let the crimes of small-minded, nasty, sadistic men overcome you. And the same time the, the Christchurch thing was going on, millions of children were protesting against the lack of action on climate change. The bad people this week were small in number. The good people were myriad. So look after yourselves. And, of course, thank you again to the Patreon supporters who helped keep the podcast going and who will now be named and not shamed in the credits for the podcast. I'll be back very soon, so take care of yourselves, and um, I'll see you then. And I'll sneak in some more music as a post-credit sequence. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast, done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H., our set photographer, Mark D., our extra, and David L., our extra, Kerry H., who is the accountant, and our newest supporter, Gary J., who is a CGFX technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. Oh, I almost forgot. I was going to tell you about Joe Hashem the actor that played Don Finlayson in um, number 96. Joe Hashim moved to Malaysia 
and married a Malaysian woman. Now, her name is um, Dr. Farida Marikan, and they created the Actor Studio, which was the first version of a teaching college for actors in Malaysia. And he's really well regarded in Malaysia. He and his wife are still together and are still teaching acting in Malaysia and are basically incredibly well respected there, which is kind of nice to see somebody from a ditzy 1970 soap opera carry it forward. And they did. Anyway, here are the credits now for the podcast. And I'm going to play you some cool R&B afterwards. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Drive-In Podcast. Done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller. Sarah, the special effects technician. Ian, the caterer. Grant, the technicolor consultant. Claire, the script doctor. Gary, the prop master. Morris, the musical director. Jan, the dialect coach. Arm and our key grip. Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler. Elaine, our scientific advisor. Julia, our casting director. Chris, our camera operator. Christopher, our gaffer. Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress. Tansy, our foley artist. Alyssa, our location scout. Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, the donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Richard H., our set photographer. Mark D., our extra. And David L., our extra. Kerry H., who is the accountant. And our newest supporter, Gary J., who is a CGFX technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. Mrs. Jones, Mrs. 
The same. 